This program was first aired on the 3rd of February 2016. This episode of Media Flash is brought to you by our upcoming course, Blogging Your Way to PR Success. At MediaHQ.com, we know that blogs are changing the PR game. Organisations and brands are taking the power back and creating content that has the potential to get real results. Now we're finally opening our doors to show you how to blog your way to the top. On the day, our award-winning team will explain all the different elements of blogging, including how to formulate a content plan, what to write about, how to fit into the news agenda, and much, much more. This half-day event will take place on the 24th of February in Dublin. For more details, call Gay on 01-473-2050 or email gay at mediahq.com. That's G-A-Y-E at mediahq.com. Get in touch and book a place today. Welcome to programme number 23. In today's show, we look at social journalism and the rise of user-generated content. We discuss how to mine the news from the noise, the ethical issues and the journalistic divide. We're joined by Storyful's Derek Bowler, expert in crafting user-generated content in compelling stories. We get behind the brand story of Europe's most popular tourist attraction. Home to the iconic brand, dripping with history and stories of its own. And right in our doorstep, the Guinness Storehouse. I'll explain to PR people how to unlock blogging, the latest content frontier. From MediaHQ.com, this is Media Flash, a show about the media. I'm Jack Murray. And I'm Alex Sheehan. So firstly today we chat with a journalist who took the path less travelled, social news expert and skilled videographer Derek Bowler is, is a senior journalist and news projects lead at Storyful. So Derek, uh, great to have you here in the studio. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Thanks it's for great. coming in. Um, so just to start off with, um, we'll just go into a little bit about yourself. So you returned to college to study journalism um, in the University of Limerick. That's right. Yeah. Journalism and new media, like myself. Of course. Um, and then you decided to work at Storyful as part of your placement. Um, so was the area of social media something that you knew you wanted a career in rather than traditional news outlets? Or how did you decide to, to take well, off it's, there? It's a funny story, actually, really, because when I first went to, to Limerick, I thought I was going to be... Um, a music journalist because uh, I listen to quite a lot of music uh, still do today um, but then I kind of developed this kind of passion for, for crime writing and you know uh, breaking news etc so um, you know when you're going on cooperative placement it's always important I thought that you know you went to a news organisation to kind of improve your skills etc but luckily um, Tom Fell who was the um, uh, course lead um, in UL at the time he approached me saying, look, Storyful are looking for somebody who's tech-minded, somebody who's interested in breaking news and somebody that's got a good knowledge of world events, etc. And he goes, I think you should, you know, put yourself forward for it. So um, I spoke with Maliki Brown and, uh, yeah, it, the conversation developed from there and they decided to take me on as a six-month placement from there. Mm-hmm. And... So you started off there as a, a trainee and you have worked your way up to a senior journalist um, and you actually deferred your final year in college then to, to continue working there, was, which is, I suppose, kind of against the grain. Like, what, was it a tough decision or did it just feel what was right? Well, at the time, it was when I started in Storyful, it was um, the first two months were a complete disaster because I went in there with the, the kind of attitude that I need to be as good as these guys and... I mean, at the time, I was working with the pioneers of journalism in, in this country in terms of social media. Um, we had like Phil McMahon, uh, Gavin Sheridan, um, all these people 
were, you know, really big names in, in journalism in Ireland. And I came at the wrong attitude saying, well, I need to do what they're doing. And for the first two months, it was a disaster. And I thought really that uh, I think I tested the pa- patience of um, of everybody that worked <laughs> in there. But I had a conversation. It was a bit of a soul searching mission, really, for myself that um, I kind of said, well, look, what what are you good at? What can you bring to Storyful? And, you know, I kind of had a new outlook, fresh outlook. And Storyful then started depending on me for things. And, you know, the the plan was I go back to college after six months. And but, you know, luckily Storyful approached me and said, you know, look, we'd like to like you to stay. Um, it was a tough decision because, you know, I was so close to finishing college at the time. I was only, you know, basically nine months away from, you know, um, completing. And I had to have a real strong, uh, strong talk with my family. I spoke with people at Storyful. I spoke with my college lecturers in UL. And I just felt that it was too much of a good opportunity to uh, to turn down, to, to walk away from, you know. Yeah, of course. Um, and just something you said there about, like, you thought about what you would bring to Storyful and then they started to depend on you. Like what what skills were they? Well, at the time when when I first came into Storyful, there was it was a very, very small team. Um, there was the company was made up of um, about 30 people, including, you know, operations, business development, uh, technology and, you know, around 20 journalists, etc. That's rapidly expanded to over 100 now. Um, but at the time, you know, they were looking for somebody who could, I suppose, was had an interest in doing video, you know, producing video packages in real time for, for clients. Um, somebody who could, you know, look at workflows and say, well, is there a tech solution to make something better? And I've always had a huge interest in tech and I've, you know, I've kind of been an internet junkie since I could get internet. And uh, since then, I've just kind of uh, developed using open source tools, etc. And I think they were looking for somebody who was, um, had that skill, had those skills and, you know, was able to combine them with the journalism that I was doing at the time. So I think um, in many ways I got lucky. I think I, I was at the right time. I came in at the right time for, for Storyful and Storyful came along at the right time for me. Yeah, of course. Um, now just onto something that is topical at the moment and something I know that you're interested in, um, the area of user generated content. So it's it's obviously a huge part of Storyful and a huge part of your role. Yeah. Um, where has this appetite for user-generated content come from? I think, um, I suppose, from the mid-noughties, around 2005, just 2006, 2007, when we saw the advent of um, social in, um, media itself, um, you know, YouTube so came along, then we had Twitter, 2007, etc. Um, I think where um, a lot of people at that time, you know, were looking from? for more than just I think, um, what a journalist I suppose, was saying. From the mid-noughties, I think around the, 2005, the 2006, 2007, when we saw the advent uh, of around the smartphone, social media itself, you know, YouTube came along, then we had Twitter. Production value of seven, etc. Telling a I story think, um, was a lot no of longer just that time, limited to you know, media we're companies and media organizations and journalists. What a journalist power was saying. actually became. And I think with the, the advent of so consumer technology, many uh, around the smartphone, think, um, around computers, you know, or we've seen scandals, um, we've seen corruption, you know, not only in the production just value, but also you know, media organizations telling a story. And I think that's no longer just limited to media companies and media organizations and they want journalists. The power was and, actually and it became a crave for me and you. information so we can by people in many events where they see think, the value in this um, you know, worldwide we've seen scandals, we've seen corruption, not only in so just general life, but also in media organisations um, and events rather than reading about events. And I think that you know, consumers in real time, people are looking for their truth and they want to see user-generated content. And it's a crave for information by people the appetite for comes because you're no longer depending on somebody else or as many people call it now, media, inform you 24 hours later in written form. 
platform, but see, you're just getting that um, innovation rather than read about an event to your, in real to your time smartphone, I think that's to your, how they feel empowered by new user-generated content. Um, and I think um, do you think that's where like, as you said, there is the, such the appetite, an appetite for it comes it? because you're no longer depending on somebody like else are under pressure to, to source this and, um, and to inform verify. you 24 like, hours later in written form, but you're just getting that information quickly and, and effectively to your, Absolutely. To your smartphone, and I think to your, that, to your tablet, um, to your I suppose, you know, that kind of need and thirst for, for content comes from the audience because... You know, with so many different platforms, you've got Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, um, you know, all these social media outlets, you know, publishers aren't just looking to, you know, disseminate content. You know, I think there was a realisation from um, from media outlets that they had to listen to, to audiences and they also had to harvest content from people like that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, when people are looking for content, um, I think that... You know, when we're going through the discovery process and especially, you know, it's about listening to the right people at the right time in real time and being able to notice these trends, etc. So to best affect, you know, the content we can source for clients. Yeah, of course. And do you think other journalists, you know, maybe more traditional type journalists, are they wary still of this of this eyewitness media and of user generated content? Absolutely. And I think that this is a, it's, a, it's a, not just an issue in, in, in Irish journalism. It's an issue in worldwide journalism. I mean, you know, if if we take what eyewitness media actually is, I mean, a video on YouTube is just a video on YouTube. I mean, if you upload a video of, say, the, the water protests in O'Connell Street, mm-hmm. yes, we know what it is, but that's because we are Irish and we know, but we're aware of the, the ongoing pro- problem with the, the water protests. Somebody in America and somebody in a European country is not going to know that. So... At Storyful, what we do is apply the traditional journalism to that piece of content. So we're looking at the quality of it. So we say, you know, is this video newsworthy? Is an, is an international client going to pick up on this? What is the context we can add to it? What is the value that we can add to it? And so by going through the verification process of finding out who the source is, what's their agenda, where were they there on that particular time? Where is this content uh, located? And is this the date that they say that? We build a bigger picture of what a video actually is. So, I mean, there is a wariness. Um, I think that, you know, it's a training issue. I think it's very much a case of stagnant media organisations not developing internally. Um, And speaking from an Irish uh, perspective in terms of Irish media, Irish media hasn't advanced in the last six or seven years. I mean, we work with inter- major international clients on a daily basis for who are craving this content and they rely on us to do the verification where Irish media, um, you know, they still fail to use it. They still fail to see the value, the true value in eyewitness media, especially in this country. That's interesting. Um, do you do you think that there are ethical considerations with, with regards to eyewitness media? Absolutely. It's, um, it's a huge thing uh, at Storyful for us, you know, Ethically, um, with a piece of content, it's very much to, you know, the first thing that has to be looked at is the uploader. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one thing the Storyful prides itself on is ethical journalism. But the first thing, our first concern is always with the uploader, especially with a piece of dramatic content from, you know, a war-torn country, maybe like uh, Syria, you know, Iraq, uh, Yemen. We're always asking, is this person OK? I mean, there's no point in me reaching out to a person and saying, you know, can we use your video? Our first thing, you ha- there has to be a humaneness about about journalism, about so- sourcing social media content. And our first concern lies with, is this person okay? Um, you know, is this person going to be okay to give us the footage, etc.? So, 
And um, we work an awful lot with repeat uploaders from from certain locations, especially locations where footage is hard to come by. And, you know, we're constantly in conversation with them. I mean, we don't say to them, thanks for letting us use our content. That's the end of the conversation. We're often finding ourselves just checking in on people saying, hey, how are you doing? You know, how, what's going on in your country today? How are you? Are you OK yourself? You know, and I mean, that's a huge concern. And I mean, the, the important thing to, to know about Storyful as well is that we don't we do not uh, solicit content. We don't tell people to go out and, t- and take footage. We use our in-house discovery tools to source content in real time and then we go and approach people after the fact after they've uploaded content so ethically um, in terms of the uploader yes there's a huge question mark over you know making sure that they're okay whereas we see a lot of news organisations um, around the world take content without these permissions etc I mean the second part of that is the type of content it actually is so if it's something from Siri that's particularly graphic uh, we work with it to, uh, to an extent to our clients to say yes we're, we're aware of this content um, Storyful is obviously not a publisher itself we're behind the paywall and clients it's up to the clients whether they use it or not but um, from an ethical point of view we've got to look at the content as a whole what's the agenda of the uploader and you know what effect is this going to have on the general public in terms of its the ethical issues around it mm-hmm. of course um, and then just from your own point of view is there any one story that you've worked on and verified that, that sticks out like in particular um, compared to others yeah I mean look in the last I suppose in the in the last two years I've worked on all the major stories you know uh the November Paris uh, Paris attacks, Charlie Hebdo last January, and um, the Nepal landslides. But I think it was when I went back to, uh, if I go back to 2013, um, uh, I suppose one of the days that really affected me um, professionally rather than personally was the day of rage in uh, Egypt. So it was the Morsi um, protests. Egypt erupted. Every every city there was major major violence, etc. But I think. Um, as a story, as a complete story itself, the day, the violence, the graphic imagery we saw on that day, I think that never leaves you. Um, I think that's always something that sticks with you, um, you know, throughout your career. And it's certainly stuck with me. Um, but it was then, because I had, I had just been with story for about two and a half months at that time. And then it was that I saw the power and the the, the need for social media in our in any, any form of uh, journalism. Um, you know, I saw what it can do. I saw what stories it could tell because, I mean, uh, the atrocities carried out by the Muslim Brotherhood that day, um, you know, would would have largely gone unreported um, or would have been based on corroboration if the pictures that emerged from there hadn't been seen by the public. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, thanks a minute for having us here. There's loads more we could discuss, of Absolutely. course, but um, time constraints and all that. But it's been very interesting um, and I'm sure it'll be of huge interest to all our audience members. So thanks a million for coming in to us today. Great, thanks. Up next, we will discuss blogging, the newest content frontier. Stick with us. If you like today's show, then why not listen back to episode three, where founder of StoryLab, Kieran Byrne, discusses the future of the Irish newspaper industry. Everybody's digesting news and, and journalism for free online, so in many ways it's too late. You know, if you've paid for a product, you know, it's going to have to be a very convincing argument to get somebody to pay for your newspaper online rather than getting news for free from the likes of the BBC website or RTE. Or why not listen back to episode eight, where radio producer Yvonne Judge 
talks about the position of women in the media. Um, it is a double-edged sword, but I definitely think there's an awful lot of improvement in the last years, and, and that's down to organisations like Women On Air, who even when they started, I overheard people saying, oh, that's just about getting themselves back on air more. It's not about the general good. But it has changed, actually. It just makes a producer pause slightly to say, is there a woman available who's very good? Then you use them once, you use them twice, and then you're an established expert then. Welcome back. I'm joined now in studio by Jack Murray and Mern Beasley, who's a researcher within our office. And we are just going to discuss blogging and the newest content frontier. Yeah, so um, last year we won an award for the best media and communications blog at the Blog Awards. And we've noticed in the last number of months that some of our simplest posts have been picked up by regional media and by the national media. So we decided Willy Wonka style to throw the doors open and to share what we've learned. And on the 24th of February, we're doing a course that charts really how blogging is the, you know, 10 years in overnight success. Blogging is the new content frontier for PR. Uh, So today, I suppose we just want to talk about the four areas that kind of indicate this to us. So what was the first one, Alex? So the first one we have here is that the world is content hungry. The web is full of uh, sites that are just thirsty for content all the time. So Mern, you work on our blog every day and do you find that the content is well received and shared? Yeah, definitely. You know, there's just a massive, massive shortage of content at the moment. And every morning it's somebody's job to fill the gaping hole on their site or their newspaper with content. And that's where blogs come in. Well-written, informative blogs are going to get recognition because people need your blog as much as you need your blog, you know? Yeah, and like I think one of the interesting things about this is that like people, I suppose, forget how quickly digital media have advanced and, you know, local radio is only a generation old, a generation old. We're podcasting today. That would have been like a couple of years ago, people weren't doing that as much. And... The way people's attention spans have changed, so people burn through digital content really quickly. Uh, we had Richie Oakley in the studio about the Times Online, and one of their things is that they're a digital paper, but they're a static newspaper every day. And I think they see, from an attention point of view, people like the 42 and that get it re- really, um, the 42 and Joe and um, sites like that, the journal, they get the fact that people have short attention spans and they get through content really quickly. So I think from a blogging point of view, if it's a brand, if it's an organisation, if it's a cause, if you can create content and some of the content we've created has appeared in wild and wonderful places from newspapers to other sites because people, as Moran said, have a gaping hole in their in the middle of their internet every day <laughs> that needs to be filled. What was the second point? Uh, the second one we have is that blogging bypasses traditional media. Um, we know that blog posts are personal um, and Myrna, a large part of your role is engagement, be it through the blog or social media. Um, do you find that creating content, kind of, you can create your own audience and almost um, put yourself as an expert in that field? Yeah, you know, most certainly blogs give your company one voice and an authentic voice at that. They allow you to engage with your audience one-to-one and cheek to cheek, so to speak. And if you're posting good quality material on a regular basis, it will help you to develop a degree of trust with your audience. And while you're also building up, you know, probably a large army of followers, they're going to be trustworthy. They're going to engage with you as much as you engage with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think from like traditional PR, you know, and we do, we help a lot of people in Media HQ to do provision from PR, but you're still genuflecting to the man or the woman or the corporation and saying, you know, can you take our press release? 
Seth Godin, the famous marketeer, talks about this concept of a thousand fans. Um, Gavin Sheridan talked about it on our last podcast, that if you're that close to your audience and you can earn the respect of a thousand people and that can be your go to audience. Imagine how powerful that is for sharing your news, for getting your content out there. And it means that you have earned that respect. So you don't have to go and get permission of somebody else. You can share your own content with your uh, own audience. And we think that's very powerful. What's the next one? Uh, the next point we have is that mm. blogs are social media gold. Um, they're the engine for your content strategy. Um, Marin, how do you find that the blog lends itself to the other platforms? In particular, you, you work on the evening shifts covering the social media channels. Do you find that they complement each other? Um, yeah, I think they definitely do, Alex. They unite all your work together and they give them kind of one home. So, you know, your blog, if you're willing to create a good quality blog with a social edge, it can become the mothership for your content. And, you know, you can work all the rest of your content off your blog. And it's a good way to stream all your content in one place and keep people coming back to your site for more. And uh, I think it's definitely, definitely something that every business should have. Yeah, and it's interesting because like one of the things people say about social media all of the time, look, I don't have time to do Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and whatever else. And the beauty of... Um, all of these sites are, it's a bit like if you take the analogy of Grafton Street with the hundreds of thousands of people and we've all seen those poor individuals with the signs <laughs> going, you know, suit sail down this alleyway. And what, what a blog is, is that it's a kind of a content engine that takes the people from the places that the population uh, or the audience are and brings them to your site. Um, and that when you explain to people that if you can create the content in one place, we've done it ourselves. We do briefings for clients, we do events, we do training, um, we're going to write a book and we're <laughs> going to do it all out of our blog because that's the place that we have clarity of thought that you can kind of bring it all together. Um, and I do think um, it streamlines things majorly. What's what's the final of our four points, Alex? Our fourth and final point is that quality has improved. Um, as you said, it's been 10 years and of course, during those 10 years, standards have risen. Um, Online content is thriving and amateurs are actually setting the pace and the standards. Um, Mern, do you think that it helps that so many starting out are digitally native like yourself? I think definitely it does. You know, if you've got a good kind of feel for social media, if you've got a good feel for what's going on at the moment in media, of course, it's going to benefit you in your writing style. You know, colleges and schools, they're spitting out journalists all over the country, but they're not looking to go into national newspapers they're looking to go and write content like blogs and things like that so of course the quality is improving every day and that's going to reflect on the blogs and sales One of the things that fascinates me is that uh, we've got a lot of talented people through Media HQ in the last five years and uh, re-established a connection with my alma mater University of Limerick where Alex you graduated from where you're currently studying there and um, it's interesting for me that throughout all of that time that the nature of the people who've come in have changed. And it dawned on me as we were preparing this piece this morning that, uh, Maren, you're probably the first really true digitally native person that we've had in the company <laughs> because uh, Facebook was founded in 2004 when I think you were seven. And uh, <laughs> I have a nine-year-old in the office now who I wouldn't let near Facebook er, at home, who I wouldn't let near Facebook in a fit. But I, I do think that when people come and that's what they've known and that's what, um, that's what they've experienced. I think the other point in that that's really interesting is that 
we have a lot of really good journalism schools in Ireland and they're producing hundreds and hundreds of graduates every year. And at Media HQ, we've employed a lot of people. Um, we saw Derek from Storyful. We've seen people ending up in different places. But the standard is raised and people end up um, with a passion for journalism, creating content for other people. And that improves things. And I think if you bring a journalism sensibility to it, um, it's going to be better and more people are going to want to read it. So... It's on February the 24th. Um, it's about how to use blogging to unlock PR results. If you're interested in it, you'll find full details on MediaHQ.com or contact Gay on 01254 Thanks for that, Jack. And finally today, we hear the story behind one of the world's most iconic brands and how the home to that brand became a destination in its own right. I went to the Guinness Storehouse and met Media Relations Manager Anya Kavanagh. She started by telling me how the brand has received worldwide recognition. 2015 was a a very successful year for the Guinness Storehouse. We had record visitor numbers of almost 1.5 million. We celebrated 15 years in business and the icing on the cake was being awarded Europe's leading tourist attraction at the World Travel Awards. Absolutely did not expect to win in in the category that we were in. We were up against the likes of the Eiffel Tower, Buckingham Palace, the Colosseum in Rome, real tourism heavy hitters. So it was um, it was amazing to have won that award and to think that it was won on the back of a public vote just makes it all the more meaningful. I think what people most like about the Guinness Storehouse, everybody likes different things about the experience that they have when they're here. But I think there's one reason that people come here and it's because they're kind of told that you can't leave Dublin without visiting the Guinness Storehouse. And I, I think that harks back to um, the place that Guinness has had in Dublin society and in Dublin's history and heritage. Um, it's probably one of the most recognisable Irish brands in the world. And the fact that we have um, we have a site here in Dublin that's open to visitors, that that people know that they can come and learn more about this iconic Irish brand when they're visiting Dublin. I think that's what draws most people here. The Guinness Storehouse is a, is a big part of tourism in Dublin and we work very closely with the tourism agencies. Um, we also have our own platforms, online, social. We do a lot of PR. We're active in the US, um, Canada and the UK in PR. Um, and we would have a number of, sort of key messages throughout the year that we would use to generate media impressions in those markets and in turn we would, um, we would hope to generate visits off the back of those media impressions. Um, online and social media are really, really important platforms for us. Um, our visitor experience here in the Guinness Storehouse lends itself really well to um, online social media engagement. Our visitors are generally um, really keen to take photos and selfies while they're here and post them online. So we try and encourage that. We have a hashtag storehouse story. We have um, a social media wall where people can upload images and then see themselves on the Instagram wall. Um, and that we, we use that content then as well to share what the storehouse story is so that potential visitors can see what it's all about, what they can enjoy, um, the perfect photos they can take when they're here. Storytelling is a huge part of, of what we do here. Um, we're largely speaking a self-guided experience uh, with lots of different bits and pieces, lots of different stories to tell, all from Guinness brand, Guinness heritage, right up to how Guinness uh, is promoted globally today. Um, our staff are really, really crucial because they bring those stories to life. So, for example, we recently rolled out a new initiative um, of storytelling within the storehouse. So at busy times, we have a team of storytellers who are on the floor, will approach groups. So they're bringing an extra story to life. They're bringing that personal touch and I suppose that, that element of real Dublin hospitality to life for our visitors. 
here at the Guinness Storehouse, we definitely do play an important part in driving awareness of Guinness as a brand. It is so um, so special for a brand to have a spiritual home like Guinness has here in St. James's Gate and to have a visitor attraction that's open seven days a week that visitors can come who maybe never knew anything about Guinness before. Maybe they just knew that it was a, an iconic Irish brand and they come through our experience here and they're a lot closer to Guinness. They're a lot more familiar with Guinness. They've had a taste. They like it. They, they might try it again. You know, that's the kind of experience that, that brands crave. And we're so fortunate here um, in St. James's Gate that we have such long-standing history here in Dublin. And um, it just it's so it's so special for us to have a visitor experience here that, that helps to bring people closer to Guinness. We're very, very fortunate here at the Guinness Storehouse that the Guinness Archives um, sit here within this building. Uh, we have um, an archives team who have so much history for, right from when... Arthur Guinness first signed the lease on the 31st of December in 1759. We have that actual lease and we have so many records from that time on. So, for example, staff who worked here throughout the years, um, their family, their descendants can do a search online on our website, guinnessstorehouse.com. They can find out if, if they have a family name and if they have some detail, they can find out what exactly we have on file. They can make an appointment to come in and, and go through those files with our archives team. Um, they can be sent those files digitally. And it's just, it really helps us tell a richer story. The fact that we have such history and such heritage. Um, and it's just something that we're delighted to be able to share with visitors. The Guinness Storehouse is now open 15 years. We're into our 16th, 16th year. Um, at the moment, I suppose we're focused on developing our marketing to ensure we're targeting the right markets and um, to make sure we're still front of mind when people come to Dublin that they, they come to visit us. And if, if anything, I think the future is very, very bright for us. Um, we're looking to have another record year in 2016. Um, Irish tourism is set, set to have another record year this year. So hopefully we'll benefit from that and look to grow and expand in the future. Well, we've come to the end of the show. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep in touch, please tweet us on at MediaHQ News or log on to MediaHQ.com or call 01-254-1845. You can also listen back to all of our shows on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com forward slash MediaHQ or search MediaHQ.com on iTunes. Today's programme was researched and produced by Alex Sheehan and Wern Beasley. Music is by our colleague Callum O'Reardon and you can listen to more of his work on SoundCloud. Just search Callum Orr. Sound supervision was by Mr. Al Dunn of Unique Media, who's the steaming iron to our wrinkled shirt. We'll be back on February 25th with our next episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye.